Hey everybody, before we get started, you might know that March is my last month as Edmonton's Historian Laureate. I'm going to keep making Let's Find Out, but before my term ends, I wanted to have one last hurrah with all of you. So we're having another live panel on March 10th. It's at the Mercury Room, and it's all about the history of green onion cakes. Tickets are 20 bucks, and that includes two green onion cakes. I hope to see you there. Let's Find Out Live, all about green onion cakes, March 10th. The link for tickets is on our website. Let's find out podcast.com. What does whitefish taste like? I don't think I've ever had it. You can fry it. I'll go bubba gump on you. You can fry it, saute it. You can you can do anything to it and it'll it's it's, it's awesome. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amaskuchi Waskaigan on Treaty 6 territory. Each episode, we take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. This episode, if it weren't for you meddling kids, Maria Makabanding and Layla Elbury help us investigate how climate change could affect the ways Indigenous peoples around here connect to nature. You see, We've been working with a group of students from Hazeldean Elementary and Queen Elizabeth High School in a sustainability education program called Innovate. They gave us some questions about climate change in our area, and we brought the Queenie students to the community radio station that I work at, CJSR, for a radio camp to teach them how to use radio and podcasting to find the answers. And Miriam and Layla are two of those students. This is the second of two episodes that we've adapted for the podcast from that camp. You can listen to the full hour of live radio we made together right now on our website, letsfindoutpodcast.com, including a third story you can only find on our website. So, Radio Camp. We started out at Queen Elizabeth High School on the north side. Let's find out assistant producer Omar Salafu and I were there, along with a bunch of us who work at CJSR. How does it feel to be back in a high school? I have like PTSD from my high school. Yada, yada, yada. We taught them field recording and interviewing skills. Do you have an SD card? Yep. Brainstorm questions together. It was really hard finding guests, but two CJSR volunteers, Ben and Hannah, were like my lucky charms. Walk in. Oh, yes, for sure. I replied to the email. You kind of know the story if you listened to the last episode about wildfires. If you didn't, go listen. Okay, so let's cut straight to the question. Miriam and Layla are going to help me tell the story here. Layla, what was your question? So our starting question was, how could climate change affect the way Indigenous peoples connect to nature? I think this is a super important question to be asking. Miriam, tell us, how did you get attached to this one? Well, we started investigating this question as part of our Innovate program. And we picked this question because we're really curious about how climate change would affect Indigenous culture. Alrighty, well, let's find out. To learn about this question, we walked across the University of Alberta campus from CJSR to the Edmonton Clinic, to the Edmonton Clinic Health Academy. Or ECA, as it's known sometimes. And uh, how many wrong turns would you guys say we took? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> but eventually we found who we were looking for, Stephanie Mondesanti in the School of Public Health. There are maybe a thousand ways to approach this question. And another volunteer at CJSR, Carter Gorzetza, pointed us towards Stephanie Montesanti because her research offered one manageable place to start, figuring out how climate change is affecting people's health. So starting, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the U of A? 
Sure. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. So I'm involved in research and I teach courses here in the school. Um, my research is um, in the area of Indigenous health. So I'm involved in a number of Indigenous health projects. Um, some projects are in uh, northern and uh, remote Indigenous communities. Um, examining uh, mostly um, impacts around health and well-being, understanding um, Indigenous people's uh, conceptualization or understanding of health and what keeps them healthy and well. Um, and their stories around health um, are very much tied to their relationship and connection to the land and where they live. Tell us a little bit about the people you've, the Indigenous people you've talked to and worked with. So most of the communities where I work are on reserve. Um, so I've worked in Siksika First Nation, which is in southern on uh, southern Alberta. Um, currently, I'm working in northern Alberta, so in the re um, region of Wood Buffalo. Um, so just outside urban Fort McMurray, the city of urban Fort McMurray, there are five First Nation communities, and those communities are very much at the very top of northern Alberta, so close to the border of Yellowknife. Um, my introduction into those communities uh, came about after uh, Fort McMurray had a wildfire, a devastating wildfire in May 2016, um, and the Indigenous peoples and communities in uh, Wood Buffalo had... Um, uh, experienced a number of, of impacts, not only impacts on the land. Um, trappers, for instance, have lost their trap lines. So uh, going back to the, the importance of being, you know, connection to land and why connection and relationship to land is important is because of the impact that the fire had had on their subsistence strategies, right, and being able to uh, practice um, traditional customs. What are the ways they connect to nature? They connect to nature by their very definition of health and what health means to them. So within, among Indigenous um, populations, their understanding or interpretation of health relates to um, a holistic definition, which includes the spiritual, emotional, um, and environmental or physical landscape. Um, so given that that physical landscape or environment is uh, at the core of their understanding of what keeps them well and healthy, um, that you know, help, helps to understand why, what that connection to the land or environment is. Generally, Stephanie stated that nature is a core element of their way of life. After learning about how Indigenous people connect to nature, we wanted to find out how climate change affects that. Do you maybe like touch on some of the point of like tell us a little bit about how climate change is maybe affecting their connections to nature? Well, we're hearing a lot about global warming as an example. Um, and I think the evidence with respects to your the question about what impact does climate change have um, on the land or environments um, is a complicated question um, because we're we're still um, we still don't know the evidence in terms of causation and, and what um, the, the impacts are. But we can certainly observe what the impacts are. Um, and we do know that global warming has impacts on warmer climates or temperatures, for instance. Um, in some of the uh, indigenous communities um, along coastal lines, for instance, so if we go to eastern Canada, um, fishing is a uh, predominant subsistence strategy for them, right? Um, so 
uh, impacts to sea level water, right, and the implications that have on um, fishing. Um, um, you know that um, you know goes ties back to how they're able to stay and remain connected to their traditional practices, right? Um, with the fire, wildfire in Fort McMurray as an example, um, I mean, that's a different uh, story, and we still don't really know the cause, but one explanation has been that it was a uh, human-induced cause, that it was um, that, but what, where we can suspect that climate change may have had an impact is that um, at that time uh, we were having um, uh, high uh, temperatures, right? The, the weather was extremely hot, uh, record high um, temperatures, and so that hot, dry air certainly exasperated the spread um, and extent of the fire. If if it does negatively impact their like where they're living, are they expected to adapt in some sort of way, or will they believe that they're going to get what they originally had? No, adaptation is a really um, important part to that. Um, I mean, part of that connection to the land is not just um, how I described earlier, but it, they, their, their resilience and strength and the resilience and strength of their own culture is also um, reflective of their connection and relationship to the land and people on the land. Um, so they do. They have to adapt to new realities, right? Um, where the struggle um, and where also resilience is an important um, aspect in this is in, in terms, and by resilience I mean their ability to cope and come back after a loss, right? Um, and that has to um, do, a lot of that has to relate to how do we adapt to these new realities and continue to exist on our land um, um, by, you know, through accepting that these changes are happening. So Chris also had a few questions for Stephanie about her work with Indigenous communities. Yeah. As she was speaking, I thought about myself as a settler who's curious about Indigenous history and how Stephanie had mentioned that she's an Ontarian from a settler background as well. As someone who is sometimes curious about history or culture um, that involves Indigenous people's uh, knowledge, um, I know it can be like, uh, it can be complicated to ask questions across cultures. Um, so how do you go about doing health research across cultures like that when you work with Indigenous folks? So I think a lot of my work can be summed up in the term community engagement. Um, so I spend a great deal of time um, establishing relationships and trust and rapport with the communities um, that I work with. It's about working with Indigenous communities, not on, right, um, on or in their communities. Um, and that's in a very important distinction. So the communities that I work with are very much equal partners and um, collaborators in the research project. They tell me through their uh, stories and their uh, wisdom and Indigenous knowledge and experience what type of research they would like to see happen in their community. What are the questions that, the research questions that we should be asking? Um, so for example, with the work I do, um, ownership, community ownership, um, and 
control over the research is really important. So with any data notes, um, interview notes, transcripts, things like that, I um, give those back to the community partner or leader on the project so that they have copies of all those data notes and transcripts themselves. Yeah. I personally thought that the way Stephanie said how she worked with and not on or in Indigenous communities was really remarkable and considerate of her because usually researchers don't think that way. Thanks so much to Stephanie Montesanti for speaking with us. So, like I said earlier, there are lots of ways to approach this question. And it seemed to me that the podcast version of the story wouldn't be complete without trying to get at least one up-close-and-personal lens from someone in an Indigenous community about how climate change is affecting their own life. So after Radio Camp wrapped up and Miriam and Layla and the rest of the Queenie students had to head back, that weekend I took a second trip out on my own. More on that in a minute. But first, I love seeing people transition from podcast listeners to podcast creators. And I especially love when those people start making high-quality stuff. So, you know how Let's Find Out is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV? Well, our network is hosting a workshop on April 7th, teaching folks how to start a podcast. And the people that are leading this workshop are some of the best, most helpful, lovely people in the Alberta podcasting community. If this sounds like it might be a fit for you, the How to Start a Podcast workshop is April 7th at the CKUA building in Edmonton. And if you use our referral code to buy your ticket, you'll be supporting Let's Find Out as well. Just click the link for the How to Start a Podcast workshop in the show notes for this episode. And thank you. Let's Find Out is also supported by the Edmondson Community Foundation, makers of the Well Endowed podcast. Their next episode focuses on women, from the YWCA's counseling program to women building futures, and also women in politics. Here's a snippet of their chat with Edmonton City Councilor Bev Esslinger. Women, when they're ready, they need to run. Everybody says, so what advice would you give me? I said, just go for it. You know, if you run for office and you're not successful, go again. When you get your driver's license and you're not successful, you don't say, oh, I'm not meant to drive. You usually take the test again. You can subscribe to the Well Endowed Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So yet another CJSR volunteer, my friend Shelley had one idea for a personal lens on this climate change slash connections to nature question to talk to her cousin, MJ Belcourt Moses, who is an artist and works with a lot of cool natural materials like wood and deer hide. So I called up MJ and she said, hey, I'm actually running this heritage village thing at the Silver Skate Festival. Why don't you come down? Because we're actually teaching the public about how indigenous people in this area live in winter. So I headed down to Horlack Park where the festival was being held I shuffled across the icy beach along the little lake to a ring of teepees and tents around a fire, and I popped my head into one teepee after another until I found MJ. And she introduced me to Dwight Paul, who was stoking a fire inside a long green canvas tent with wooden poles that poked out the top. MJ waved me over to sit up by the fire with Dwight. It'll be cold in my butt. Oh, yeah. Thanks. There you go. Oh, thank you. That's great. He had a pot on the stove full of deer ribs. I wish I had some barbecue sauce. (laughs) Something sweet. If I'd known, I would have brought some. They're going to taste good. I'm going to add some more water to it, boil it a little while longer so it'll just fall off the bone. 
how we eat it. It's gonna be delicious. And this is a deer that you... I shot. Me and my baby and my wife, we went out to the bush this past fall and we shot it, processed it, we smoked it, and we bagged it so that we can consume it during the winter. And we're almost close to spring. We're almost there, but we're kind of running out of meat now. I offered tobacco and told him why I'd come. My name is Dwight Paul. I'm from uh, Paul Bend, Nakota Sioux. And um, climate change has been here for a long time. So the, the question comes from uh, Miriam McAbending and Layla Elbury at uh, Queen Elizabeth School, uh, High School. And uh, they were curious to know how climate change is affecting Indigenous people's connection to nature in this area. We're sitting in a hunting camp tent that, is, you said it's sort of a smaller version of what you do? Uh, out, well, this is, this is a good-sized version of it. Um, it's an all-purpose, uh, you know, building structure. You could either camp out in here if you really wanted to, or, but mainly we would process our, our fish and our meat inside this, this, this dwelling. We'd dry it, dry, smoke our fish, dry our fish in here, or smoke our meat, dry our meat in here. And what brought you... What convinced you to come to Silver Skate to share some of your stories? My good friend MJ. <laughs> um, I think MJ mentioned you have a like a formal role with Paul First Nation too that that gives you some insight into this. Uh, what what is that role? I am a um, environmental monitor for my nation when it comes to um, when it comes to the um, uh, duty to consult. Uh, when industry is going to put a pipeline or, or a riser or a well or do anything out there, they have to notify the bands that they're going to be in the traditional area. So they send teams out to truth the land, to walk the land, to document every species of plant there that we know as medicinal and that we know as, a, as invasives. And, um, and then to document the... the the, the trails of the animals, uh, the sign of animal that we see, uh, you know, uh, we document all of that. When I was a young person, our, our main mode of transportation was horse and wagon in the summertime and, and horse and sleigh in the wintertime. So, it went from from uh, from just natural transportation to to the uh, the car, the truck, um, and it and, and the con the consumption of uh, of energies uh, went up a lot. And in our lake, in Waldman Lake, I remember as a child about 1969, 1970. I was just a little child. I must have been about two or three years old. But I remember that fish camp along the, the Goose Quill Bay, and uh, and along the we call it Nimne. So along that area, I remember my grandparents, my grandfather. I didn't know that was my grandfather at the time. I asked my mom uh, recently who that man was that had the blue boat that came out of the reeds with uh, with pails of fish. And she told me that was my grandfather, Joe Rain. But 
during that time, the Indian people would uh, would use the land to to live for their for their living for their for everything, and they would uh, they would go there from their fish camp there. They would during the August September they would be catching whitefish because the whitefish were spawning then. Back in the day, we followed all the seasons of everything. We followed the seasons from the berries, from the first gooseberry in, in the springtime to the, to, the, to the strawberry, raspberry, to the Saskatoon blue, blueberries, huckleberries, choke cherries, highbush cranberry, to the last one would be the uh, lowbush cranberry. As Dwight spoke, he painted a picture of how, for folks in Paul First Nation, Natural relationships have been disrupted in lots of ways. Climate change intersects with all sorts of industrial disruptions. You might have been to Wabman Lake yourself. It's just west of Emerson. To swim or to see the coal plants. Dwight said, as important as fishing in that lake was to his family, they haven't been able to fish there for decades. Do you mind if I ask you a silly question? Kind of, um, what does whitefish taste like? I don't think I've ever had it. You can fry it. I'll go Bubba Gump on you. You can fry it, saute it. You can you can do anything to it, and it'll, it's 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 awesome. It's, uh, to me, that's the best tasting fish. A lot of people say walleye or something else, but for me, it's whitefish. What's what's the that other name for wabaman? Uh, Whitnimne. 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 It means mirror lake, but wapaman is 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 Cree word for mirror, for mirror image. Wapaman. But we Nimne, because we're Nakotas, that's what is that's what we called it. Our our Wobman Lake, we've haven't eaten fish out of there since the late seventies, early eighties. And it's now two thousand and eighteen. And because the, the mercury levels are so high in them, the plants that are around them changed the 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 environment, the ecology around that lake and made it so that the the animals, the fish, the the fish that, that swam in that lake, they weren't good to eat, uh, the mercury content, the heavy metal content was high in them. And we believe it was due to the industry, the coal industry there, because the, they had generation, generating plants around uh, that lake, they had three of them around that lake. We're way ahead of any other country in the destruction of, uh, of natural lands. Um, you go out to the bush right now, toward Elk River and my, my beloved Elk River, I love that area. There's no trees, none. There's absolutely none out there. It's completely clear-cut. All you see is bald hills, big rolling hills with no, with nothing on them. I get to see the grizzlies now because I never used to see them because their habitat made them invisible to human beings. Only when you, you would pop up at a spring or a camp, that's the only time you've seen them. But now I get to see them because their habitat is reduced and there's nowhere for them to hide. There's nowhere for them to call home. And that's for all the animals out there. So... For... for for you as someone who lives on the land and observes these changes day to day, like, is it those species changes you were talking about, of, of what you can tell about where species are, are living and what you're seeing more often, like those grizzlies and, and the whitefish and stuff, um, how do you know which ones are, hap- how do you know which of those changes are happening because of climate change specifically as opposed to some of those other things? For example, 
Where we are right now in, in, in central Alberta, the weather used to be extremely cold. I remember those weathers. I remember those winters when snow banks were, were just about as high as your house. They had to use a grader, a cat, to grade the roads because the graders would get stuck in the middle of the roads. So I remember those times when winters were really tough. This is why the importance of gathering and, 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 and looking after your family, you know, following those seasons, making sure you got all your berries dried and bagged and ready to use for winter sustenance and all your, your, your garden and, and, and your bush plants that you need to keep yourself healthy and all the meat and fish that you need to, to survive the winter in, in case of some other family that did not have enough uh, sustenance for themselves for the winter that you were able to share without putting your family in jeopardy. I remember those times. So when you look at today, when you look at today and you look at the, the, the species like the grizzly, habitat plays big in all animals, not just grizzly, but habitat for all animals. Right now, the ungulates, as the scientists say, are under stress because there's, there's too many predators. And there's a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of moose, elk, and deer out there out in the bush anymore. You have to walk a long ways to find them. And it's not because of treaty right and entitlement of hunting the animal. It's because of the, the packs of wolves and, and predators that are out there. Every calf that hits the ground, 50% of them will be gone by July. So if you have a reduced number, already having a reduced number of calves, that, that, um, you know, that, that ability to, to, to navigate through, you know, like if you're living in old growth, there's a lot of stuff that animals can use to hide in, like the, the calves and stuff. But when you clear cut, you leave that completely open and then the birds and everything else can see every little thing that's hiding there. So there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to maintain uh, a protection of, of, of the species at all. So when you look at reduc reduction of habitat, it affects all things, not just grizzlies, everything, deer, moose, elk, you know, the Martin Fisher, um, everything. Everything that lives in, in that bush is affected. The only ones that, that tend to do well and thrive are, the, are, the, are the, the ones that go around cleaning up the earth, like the, the magpies and the ravens and the crows and the hawks and the eagles. They'll benefit from, from the kill sites that are going to happen because it's far easier for predators to find the animal because they have no habitat protection where they can hide. And when you look at uh, climate, climate change, all of these are factors. When we were living in this area and it was minus 40 degrees, that moose tick that they call today a moose tick that kills a lot of moose, they were further south into the warmer climates. But now that the, 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 the change of weather and change of seasons happened, these things are moving further north. They're here in Alberta for the last 30, 40 years. And now if the climate keeps getting warmer, they're going to be in Alaska and, and, and also the Northwest Territories on those moose. And because those ticks are so, they just suck you dry. They're like a bunch of little vampires, I guess. But they will cause you so much um, difficulty. Well, call, cause the moose so much difficulty because they're being bit every day and they're itchy. So what they're going to do is they're going to rub off their coat. And once they no longer have that coat, they have no, no protection from the cold. So they die. 
they get sick and die and that's that's just the way things work out there in, in, in nature but as climate change has changed it's allowed a, uh, I don't know a parasite that 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 bug to come further north and it's going further north it's still go, marching north you go down south you'll, you'll have that and deer and elk over there but you come up here we hardly ever see that up here because of the cold so when you look at those things, um, yeah, yeah, it's scary when you when you when you add a timeline to it. My my kids are going to live in that timeline. So I guess what visiting Dwight taught me was two things. One, some very central stuff to his way of life is being disrupted by climate change and industrial activity in the area. And two, climate change is just one part of that big picture of change in this region, from cut lines to mercury to migrating ticks. For the students who asked, um, for Miriam and Layla, is there anything else that you would want to tell them? Learn about the land. Learn how it works. Learn about that whole circle process from the seasons and the springtime when things grow. And then some, some plants are evergreens, they stay green all winter and some go back to sleep. Learn about how important those ones that go to sleep for the winter, how important that the ones that the trees, the, the leaves fall to the ground. How important that is for the, uh, for the ones that live under the ground that, that, that reclaim all of that so that they can nourish. Just, just learn about, about uh, how that circle, learn about those life circles. Learn about it, be hungry about it and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Thanks Dwight, I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. This podcast is produced by Omar Salafu and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Don't forget about our live Green Onion Cakes event on March 10th. Head to our website to grab tickets. We want your questions about Edmonton history? Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you download podcasts, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under Let's Find Out Podcast. Okay, thank you, Time. Thank you to all of the meddling kids from Queen Elizabeth's Innovate program. It was a pleasure to work with you. Sawar Yusuf, Andrew Hoy, Rasha Shibli, Naha Taha, Maria Makabanding, and Layla Elbury. Thanks also to James Stewart, Aaron Dublenko, and Ian Potts for helping us make the connection with the Innovate program at Edmonton Public Schools. And thanks to Stephanie Montesanti and Dwight Paul for speaking with us. This episode would not have been possible without the work of Melanie Zaitsov, Chad Brunet, Diana Changharado, and Megan Miller at CJSR. Thanks to Carter Grozitsa, Shelley Jodwin, and MJ Belcourt Moses for the connections, and Ben Penner and Hannah Cunningham for help chasing. Thanks to the Empton Historical Board and the Empton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast, to everyone who's been supporting it, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the feverishly lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Herji at Mount Pioneer Design. All right, that's it for this episode. Until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>